Welcome to the RCAP USA Roundup, a podcast where we have real conversations affecting both cattle producers and beef consumers. We're your hosts, Jaden Moreland and Karina Jones. With that, let's get to today's episode. Vertical integration, consolidation, monopolies, all phrases and realities American ranchers are becoming very familiar with. In 2014, the meat racket hit bookshelves around the country and brought to light the monopoly-dominated structure of the American meat industry. We sat down with author Christopher Leonard to discuss his research, consolidation of the meat industry, and how the industry has changed just eight years after his book was released. Okay, Chris, thank you so much for being on here with us today. We are so excited to sit down with you and discuss the beef industry and for you to just share your knowledge with us. So I want to start with a quick introduction. Tell us about yourself, your career, your background. What do you do? Okay, well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm an investigative reporter. I focus on reporting on big corporations and then kind of the overlap between big corporations and, and government. I like I see the fundamental job of a reporter as being to kind of describe the big institutions and the people that run our country right? To, to get inside these big institutions, describe how they work, describe how the decisions are made and who's making the decisions, and then kind of put it all into a book that can go out to the American public. So, you know, people can quickly read and understand and learn more about these institutions. So like, that's my job. I live in Kansas City. The Meat Racket, which we'll talk about today is my first book. It profiles Tyson Foods as one of these institutions I'm talking about, but I really use that as a vehicle to talk about the consolidation of power in agribusiness writ large and what that's meant for rural communities and what it's meant for places where raising meat is still like a pillar of the economy. I mean, th- that's what drew me to this book was this, but l- let me back up a little bit. I was born and raised in Kansas City. I went to the University of Missouri School of Journalism. My first job out of school was working at the local paper called the Columbia Daily Tribune. One of the things I love about being a reporter is it, it puts you out into the world. And as you can imagine, one of the things I really discovered a lot about was agribusiness, being a reporter in Columbia, Missouri. I encountered Tyson Foods for the first time in 1999, I think. It gets me to what I was just about to say, which was as a young reporter, I realized that the rural economy and agribusiness specifically had kind of been redrawn during the 80s and 90s. It had become more consolidated and controlled by fewer large companies than really at any point in U.S. history. So You know, it was from really early on that I was kind of obsessed with this topic and kind of obsessed with the the methods of an investigative reporter, which is going out, interviewing people, getting documents, trying to put the story together and discover how power systems work. And that's what led to me doing the meat racket. So can you expand on the meat racket for those who haven't read it? Can you kind of just give us a brief overview of it? Absolutely. You know, I know that that we're probably a lot of our listeners are in the cattle business. In a way, I'm writing, I wrote the meat racket for what you'd call just like the American reader, right? The broad American public. This business of meat production affects everybody um, because a vast majority of Americans eat meat. I mean, it's north of 95%, right? It's uh, most of us eat meat. We count on it. It's a source of protein. So this system of, of meat production involves everybody who eats. But very specifically, one of my core concerns in writing the meat racket was to kind of 
understand and document what has happened to entrepreneurs in rural America who raise meat. And that would be your industrial chicken producer, your chicken farmer, it would be your hog farmer, and it would be your cattle rancher. And when we talk through the book, really, this is a message in a bottle. It's a warning sign, if you will, to cattle ranchers. Because what I'm trying to say is, look what's happened to poultry producers. Look what's happened to hog producers. Everybody in the cattle business knows this system is coming for you, so to speak. So it's a book that's really aimed at cattle ranchers. But let me start from the beginning. The Meat Racket is a profile and a history of Tyson Foods, the, the biggest meat company in the United States. And not just the biggest, it's emblematic of the meat system today. Tyson Foods was was a pioneer of the industrialization and the consolidation of meat production. You know, Tyson Foods was started in 1929. It's been there from the the beginning of our modern food system, and it's really driven a lot of the changes that I'm concerned with. So, So the book tells the story of Tyson Foods but it really gets out into the countryside, if you will. I'm interviewing uh, poultry producers. I'm interviewing hog farmers, cattle ranchers, feedlot owners, and trying to talk about the interaction of this corporation based in Springdale, Arkansas, that is Tyson, and then and then the people who who kind of live in its web, if you will. So whenever you were researching, what was something that really was just like surprising to you? I would, I guess I would phrase, like, was there something that you were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that's happening. Yeah. And, and I mean, let me start at the beginning because that, that very feeling you just described is what started this book. Okay. So I was a reporter with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette newspaper down in Fayetteville, Arkansas, which is just a stone's throw away from Springdale where Tyson is based. And I covered business down there. And in 2004, I was sent down to a very small town in in, uh, Scott County, Arkansas. The town was called Waldron. And the purpose of my story was to write about this strange disease that had been afflicting chicken flocks down uh, around this town of Waldron. Now, when we're talking flocks, we're talking about four or five chicken houses that have like 80,000 birds inside, big industrial operations. There was some kind of, we never figured out what it was. Some sickness was hurting and and infecting these flocks and killing tens of thousands of birds at a time. And what that meant was that the farmers were suffering huge financial losses. I mean, they were losing, you know, six weeks worth of income because of this disease. And here's what struck me when I went down there. This was the, oh my God, what's going on kind of moment. Is, is I get down to this very remote town of Waldron and I was driving around interviewing these farmers. These people had been in this business for like 10 years or more. They knew what they were doing. They had also invested hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in their operations to raise chickens for Tyson Foods. And the reality is they were totally powerless. That's what struck me. They were put out of business through no fault of their own, and they felt like they had no recourse, no way to come back at the company. No one was filing lawsuits. And I was meeting these proud, independent, hardworking farmers who were being crushed under the heel of a powerful company. That's the only way I can describe it. I can't even describe to you the environment of fear down there. I'll never forget going to this woman's house that was very remote, literally on a wooded hillside in the middle of nowhere, not even a cell phone tower in sight. And she was scared to talk about Tyson Foods. It's like it's like someone from the company was standing right behind her listening to what she was saying. And that's inquiry here is, is I wanted to understand 
how could one company become this powerful? How could this system be drawn to where these hardworking business people have almost zero control over their own operations? They have, you know, the balance of power is totally out of whack between them and this company. And so, you know, then I set about to kind of understand how the system got built and how it ran from the inside. So what like made you decide to write a book about it, I guess? Like, I mean, anybody, like any journalist can go and write a few stories about what's happening, but what made you decide to be like, this needs to be heard by everybody? The fact of the matter is I was a newspaper reporter and this was like, 2004, between 04 and 2010. Let's just say the older I've gotten, the more and more I've appreciated investigative journalism. And during those years, I was in my 30s, and I really came to admire this group of investigative reporters. And what they would do is they would produce these books and then write articles out of the books. And this is the role a a book can play. Okay, this is why I wanted to write a book is that you can actually spend years reporting on a topic instead of just kind of bouncing in, bouncing out, grabbing what you can grab. When you write a book, you really like immerse yourself in the thing and you go back again and back again and back again and you really interrogate the situation. I mean, there are folks who talk to me for books that I have conversations with them for years before they go on the record. And sometimes it takes years to get documentation. Like, um, you know, down there in Waldron, Arkansas, I got all kinds of internal company documents that really showed in black and white what Tyson Foods was doing. That takes a lot of time. I wanted to frankly follow in the footsteps of my heroes and and my role models and do this kind of journalism. And and I realized this was a story just eminently uh, worthy of a book in the sense that This company, Tyson Foods, and this whole system has really evaded scrutiny. I mean, these companies operate in smaller towns where you might have maybe one local newspaper, maybe a couple newspapers, one at the county level, one at the town level, journalists in Chicago or New York or San Francisco who really don't appreciate the the power and the importance of firms like Tyson Foods, Archer Daniels, Midlands, Cargill. These companies aren't scrutinized to the degree I think they deserve it. So I was like, you know, I want to do a book like the kind that I love to read, but about this company. And and then that way I can really tell the history. I can really go deep on the reporting and I can really kind of bring it all um, under one roof, if you will. So you presented at the Yale Antitrust Conference in January of 2021. And one of the things that you highlighted when you started off your presentation was that monopoly power had worsened since you wrote The Meat Racket. And I can't believe that was already 14 months ago. And I think we've seen new history be be written. Talk about this darkening trajectory. Where did we come from and where are we now? When I started the book in 04, and then really, it really gained purchase like 2010, 2011, then the book came out in 2014. And the meat racket was kind of this uh, red alarm bell, if you will, saying our meat industry is more consolidated than it's been at any time in history. It's more consolidated than it was back in the early 1900s when we passed the Packers and Stockyards Act and we're trying to fight the meat trust. 
I was going around constantly repeating myself saying that four beef packers control 85% of the market. Two chicken companies control half of the national market. You know, that would be Pilgrims and Tyson. They control 50% of the market. Compare that to 1978, half of the market was split up among 38 companies. So we've consolidated from 38 to two by the time I write this book. And there was a similar trend going on in the hog industry where the top four controlled, I think, ballpark 65%. Particularly when you're talking about poultry and pork, it's not just that the companies control so much of the market share, it's that they vertically integrated the whole thing. And I don't need to explain that to your listeners, what vertical integration is, but Tyson owns the feed mill, the slaughterhouse, the trucking line, the hatchery, they control the farm through contract. So we'd seen a level of monopoly control that was unprecedented. And my argument, based on reporting, it's not like I you know, woke up thinking this one day, but I found it through the reporting is that when you've got this level of monopoly, rural communities really suffer. Okay, These companies do the same thing monopolies have always done. They suppress what they pay producers. They keep the prices down. They put the boot on the industry, if you will. And then they raise prices for consumers, okay? And they, and they cut quality and, and they basically harm product quality. And then they capture that big profit in the middle. So that's what I was arguing in 2014. And as, as a lot of your listeners probably know, listen, let me, let me say this about your organization, RCAF. Um, I'm not just saying this because I'm on your show. This is the reason I'm on your shows. RCAF has been indispensable in this space for years. When I was a young Associated Press reporter trying to figure out what was going on, I got on the phone with this guy named Bill Buller, who was talking about industry consolidation, monopolies. He blew my mind and profoundly informed my work. And RCAF has been there consistently fighting in my view, okay, as an outsider looking at this, I feel like RCAF is pushing for just a few key things. Competition in the market, open markets that entrepreneurs can get into and compete on their merits, and anti-monopoly power. And, and so, you know, back in 2014, RCAF was out there on the front lines fighting this fight. The Obama administration and Tom Vilsack kind of came around to this view and just got demolished by the meat lobbyists. And, and the, the efforts to reform this industry fell apart in 2011 and 2012. And so my book comes out in 2014. And what happens is the monopoly gets worse and the abuses become more obvious and more extreme since my book comes out. It's really quite depressing, to be honest, to watch the, the situation get worse over time. And, and let me please just put it this way, based totally on evidence, okay? In 2014, when the meat racket came out, I actually went down to Springdale, Arkansas, went into Tyson Foods headquarters and interviewed a guy named Donnie Smith and another guy named Donnie King. Donnie Smith at the time ran the chicken division telling me how they cut production in a way that caused prices to increase. I mean, they were like bragging about how they could control all the chicken farms out of the headquarters in Springdale. And I put that in the book. And what I put in the book was Tyson Foods has gotten so big that it doesn't even need to collude with its competitors anymore. It can control the industry through its own production cuts because it's bought out so much of the industry. It's gotten so big. I was wrong. Later evidence that has emerged through federal indictments, prosecutions, and civil lawsuits shows Tyson Foods was illegally colluding with its competitors that day that I was down there in Springdale. Folks were sending text messages around to rig the market, to raise prices, 
and to illegally collude in ways that hurt farmers and hurt producers. So what I'm saying here is my investigative reporting book actually didn't even capture the level of criminality that existed inside Tyson Foods at the time. And those practices continued all the way. My book came out in 2014, all the way up until today. These companies are abusing their monopoly power. How are these monopolies affecting rural America? These monopolies are stifling economic opportunity in rural America and depressing wealth, depressing wage growth and wealth. I mentioned earlier, I wrote this book largely for cattle ranchers. I I feel like the book progresses kind of like a bullseye series of circles, okay? We start in the middle by talking about the poultry industry which is ground zero for the model of monopoly and vertical integration, okay? The the poultry companies were the ones that totally pioneered this system whereby the corporation owns and controls the feed, the medicine, the genetics, the animal, and then the farmer raises for them under contract and a contract that's so restrictive that the farmer is an employee. I mean, they really are. I had, I used phrases like babysitter or janitor, which is kind of demeaning, but like, these contracts give the farmer almost zero latitude to make their own decisions. It's unbelievable. And and so much of the financial risk is shifted on to the farmer through these contracts. So that's the super concentrated, monopolized, vertically integrated system. Then you go one circle out and you see the hog farmers. And, And companies like Tyson replicated the vertically integrated monopoly system and imposed it on hog farmers in the 80s and 90s. That's when we saw the birth of the confined animal hog farm, the growing under contract, premium standard farm, Smithfield Foods, all these folks just replicate the Tyson model with pork. And you see the open market for pork disappear. There used to be a spot market, it's gone. The final circle out that I talk about in the book is a cattle rancher. And the companies have not figured out how to turn that cattle rancher into an employee like a chicken farmer, but they are doing everything they can to get there. They're doing everything they can to get there. And and one of the biggest obstacles is the biology of the cow. Um, Cows need to eat grass. The mother cow has one calf at a time, whereas pigs and chickens have more of a assembly line litters or eggs, right? So anyway, these companies could never figure out how to turn cattle ranchers into contract employees, but they're working at it and they're doing their best they can to get there. Your question is, what did this all do to rural America? Let's look at life in the center of the circle. In your typical poultry producing town, the system has become so consolidated that when you're a chicken farmer, now, and and we're talking, you're a small factory owner is how I like to phrase it. You're a couple or a family usually, borrow $2.5 million, you build a complex of six very large chicken houses that are sophisticated operations, automated, uh, lots of computer uh, technology in there. This is very typical. You borrow 2 million bucks, you build one of these compounds. Now you need to go into business raising birds. You pretty much only have one or two companies to do business with. That's how consolidated the business has gotten. So you can do Tyson or you can do Pilgrim's. And there's not going to be much of a difference between them. So you sign a contract, you're working seven days a week, you're raising these birds. The companies use their market power to suppress what they pay that farmer. All documented, it's all out there. And that farmer's got very few 
choices, if they get upset, if they don't feel they're being treated fairly, who are they going to go to? You see Tyson operate in these communities where it is suppressing payment to people who are raising animals, which in a lot of these communities, as I've said, it's still a, a pillar of the economy. In rural America, raising animals shouldn't is not a hobby. It's not a side business. I mean, this is one of the key businesses that is sort of the, the foundation of the rural economy. And when you've got one huge sector of it, like poultry, that gets swallowed up by one firm, and then the payment is suppressed, you are taking income and you are taking wealth out of that rural community. And William Heffernan, based at the University of Missouri for decades, and he's still alive, he's retired but he did incredible longitudinal studies over decades showing how uh, payment to poultry farmers was suppressed and reduced as competition disappeared. So let's just say the same thing has happened in the pork industry without a question. And then look at the cattle industry. Okay. You've got thousands of ranchers out there independent, and then you've got this kind of bottleneck of the feedlot. And as you know, the feedlots are getting larger and fewer, and more and more of them are under a contract with a packer. When they sell that fat market steer, I, I was interviewing a guy based in Ainsworth, Nebraska. You know, he was describing something some of your listeners might relate to is that when it came time to sell the, the fattened animal, he went out to this market of supposedly four buyers, but really it was like two buyers. And really, if you want to be honest, it was one buyer. And, and I've heard it from a lot of feedlot owners that they're feeling the squeeze. And now it's to a lesser degree than what that poultry farmer lives with every day. But what you're seeing is market power is determining what the, the rancher and the feedlot owner get paid as opposed to quality of that product, the skill of the feedlot owner, the reliability of you know delivering a certain amount of meat at a given time. All those factors take a second seat to the market power of the packer in that region. So as industries become more consolidated, as companies can exercise monopoly power, it suppresses income, it suppresses wealth in rural communities. And to speak about it a little bit more broadly, it, it, it stifles capitalism. I mean, what we all want here, in my view, is a capitalist system where people who want to work hard and have a good idea can plug into it, if you will. They can get into a platform and they can compete and they can win or lose, but they've got that opportunity to get in there and work and compete. That's capitalism in my view. Monopoly capitalism is, forget your hard work, forget your smarts. It's going to come down to market power and you know which packer is in charge in this region, if that makes sense. So it stifles opportunity and it, it suppresses pay. You know, what you just described is pretty much an exact echo of what Eric Nelson, RCAF vice president and Iowa cattle feeder describes on his operation, what he has went through when trying to market fat cattle ready for market and um, having the illusion that there should be four players in the market, but really there's only two, but maybe only one competitive. And so, yeah, that's we we've heard that time and time again. So then on the flip side of that ribeye is a consumer. How is this monopoly power in America's food system affecting the American consumer? It's hurting the American consumer and it's hurting the American consumer in two ways. It's giving the middleman, the, the middleman corporation monopoly can raise prices based on their market power in the same way that they can suppress what they pay the farmer. So like 
you and I just talked about the rancher not getting paid for their quality or their work as much as they are for the market power. Flip it around and you look at the consumer and it's it's just the opposite side of that coin. The companies can raise prices, not based on the quality of the food, not even based on the supply, but based on their market power. And so I'll tell you what, in 2014, when the meat racket came out, there was sort of this idea of like, well, you know, maybe this is bad news for the farmer, which by the way, I can't even this is a side point, but it is unbelievable how some people just don't care at all about the economics of rural America, that it's sort of accepted as, well, you know, maybe this is really bad for farmers, but uh, hey, we're getting cheap meat, right? That was a big, big part of a lot of what I encountered. The idea that the companies were jacking up prices, if you will, for consumers seemed kind of out there. Everyone had it in their brain, like, hey, meat is really cheap. You know, that's been the one big thing about industrializing the system is meat is cheap. Well, that was then, and this is now. I mean, prices before COVID, prices were rate like this escalator. Consumer prices were rising and rising and rising and rising. And I mean, I'll never forget in 2016, this big antitrust suit got filed against the meat packers. And I interviewed this guy who was a stock analyst who'd been covering Tyson Foods stock for years. And this guy who was like an insider, and I wrote an article about it. Um, if you Google AgriStats and Christopher Leonard, this art article comes up. This guy who was an industry insider came to the conclusion by 2016 that there was no other way to describe Tyson Foods stair-step increase in profits every year, no matter what. There was no other way to account for that other than monopoly power. This guy had like a huge break with the company. He'd been buddies with these people, basically. It was pretty amazing because he put out a report saying, yeah, I've read this antitrust lawsuit and it uh, sounds right to me. You know, So for consumers, what this has meant is that the prices are getting raised. Sometimes it's going to happen, but the problem is if you've got monopolies just jacking up the prices to juice their profit margin... It, it, it's going to turn that consumer away from the product eventually in, in, in ways that aren't great. And, and the problem for the consumer is that they don't have that choice anymore. The companies have totally narrowed the choice at the, at the meat counter, if you will. So it, what it has meant for consumers is they've seen these price hikes that are, you know, a one-to-one -one match almost with these record profits at Tyson Foods and JBS while the farmer and ranchers getting paid less. And then the quality isn't, you could say the quality falls or the, the product is overpriced for its quality. And one of the things I write about is how these companies, they, they, they want to aim for that middle level of quality, cheap, fast, reliable, you know, factory line type stuff, and then raise the price on it. So yeah, so the consumer really gets hurt by the system as well. So in your um, presentation at that Yale Antitrust Conference, you talked about really needing a public policy approach to get some incredible reforms to restore competition. Do you still feel that public policy reform is going to solve some of these issues and talk about what you think that can look like? America is founded on the idea of individual liberty and market capitalism, not state-driven capitalism. So we have this deep ingrained love of those values in the United States, and then it's really present in rural communities, wouldn't you say? That kind of idea? Yes, yeah. And, and so then that brings us to this issue of antitrust law and, and market power. 
The meat racket describes a system that is controlled by monopolies, a system that is plagued by monopoly abuse. Now, Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations, which is kind of like one of the earliest textbooks about how to do capitalism, Adam Smith talked about the problem that when capitalism, when the wheels are allowed to turn on their own, you will get these groups that start to gain market power and then use that to further entrench their market power. Monopolies can get root in an industry and then grow. And then once a group of elites gain market power and gain monopoly power, quite unfortunately, capitalism doesn't work anymore. The laws of supply and demand don't change the market anymore. It's all driven by market power. And and so then capitalism starts to not work anymore. It's not a competitive market. And then you've got this very strangely like centralized, controlled monopoly capitalist system. And so why I say we need a public policy approach is like boycotts aren't going to solve this. You know, when I when I went around talking about the meat racket, everybody was like, well, so are you saying I need to not buy Tyson Foods chicken? First of all, I'm like, good luck. I still think raising meat as I've said a billion times, pillar of rural communities, important. And if you're boycotting it, you're just hurting uh, producers in rural country, in counties, rural counties. So, and, and also boycotting is not going to solve this problem. We invented antitrust laws for the very reason to fight monopoly power, to push back monopoly power, and to break apart mo- monopoly power so that competitive markets can operate again so that supply and demand can work again. And so that people can get in and out of markets or compete and build and grow. That's the whole reason we have antitrust policy. Um, Really fascinating history of how this all came together in the 1900s and the 1930s and the 1940s. Federal antitrust authority is really the only counterbalance to transnational monopolistic meat corporation. Forming these smaller markets aren't, they're not going to break apart the monopoly power of, of the core meat producers. And so boycotting or starting uh, smaller side ventures isn't going to confront this market power. So that's why I argue for antitrust enforcement. Now, to get back to where we started, it's problematic because you're saying federal regulation. Right. And that's what people hear is federal regulation. And there's a lot of resistance to it. There's kind of been a whole buffet, a whole menu of legislative reforms proposed on this issue. You know, the last 12 to 18 months. But where Washington, D.C. has seemed to have gotten derailed is this art of compromise that we can take this weakened approach to try and um, combat this monopoly power. And they've literally called it a compromise. But when I hear you talk, you know, and when we read things like the meat racket and we study rural America, I think we've been being compromised for decades out here in rural America. And I think it's gonna take some stronger enforcement than maybe what we're seeing out of DC right now. Would you agree? I would agree wholeheartedly. and. When you're talking about this so-called compromise, the North American Meat Institute and the National Chicken Council and the National Pork Producers Council and all the people who make money off the monopolies, which let me promise you, there's a lot of money in it. They're just loving it. They're just smiling, sitting back and saying, perfect. Because 
I write about it in the book from the meat lobbyists themselves, okay? Their strategy is to just slow momentum because legislatively it's called taking on water. You know, they know that if the initiative gets um, hindered or slowed down or trammeled up or complicated, the energy dissipates. Inaction benefits the, the incumbent players in a business. When nothing happens, it benefits the people who have power at the moment. And so all these companies need is for like a lot of delay and a lot of uh, argument and deflating compromise to happen so that the next crisis can emerge, uh, something crazy can happen, and attention moves on. I just saw uh, Democratic Senator John Tester last night was on cable news talking about this exact issue. He's talking about the same issues and the same dynamics that Barack Obama and Tom Vilsack were talking about in 2010. And if the meat industry gets its way, we'll be having this exact discussion in 2032. And they will be happy as they can be. In 2010, the Obama administration held a series of, of four big public hearings around the country. And it was a big deal. The Attorney General Eric Holder appeared on stage side by side with the Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack. That had never happened, in, to my knowledge. So at, at the press conference afterwards, Eric Holder was there with his chief of antitrust enforcement named Christine Varney. And I asked the question, I was an AP reporter, and I said, well, so what, you know, what are your remedies? Or would you consider breaking these companies up? And Eric Holder said, oh, no, 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 no. You know, we're, we wouldn't, we're not thinking of breaking them up. We're looking at different remedies. So from the very beginning, their, their position was one of compromise and amelioration and kind of negotiating against themselves, where they took the only reform that's ever been shown to work, which is... Um, breaking up companies so they don't have dominant market share. They say, oh, no, 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 We're, that sounds radical. It sounds drastic. We would never do something like that. Can I tell you who does have the courage to break up companies? Are these private equity hedge fund people? Because they realize um, you know, it's not benefiting shareholders. And it just always strikes me that the, the sharks, the private equity sharks on Wall Street have more courage to talk about reshaping markets than the elected representatives that supposedly re represent the people. That's kind of a soapbox thing. But when you talk about the policies that, that could be implemented and, and the sort of compromise issues, the solutions to this stuff should not be that complicated. Look at what we did in the 1920s and the 1930s to confront Hormel, like these old school SWIFT and national and armor, the so-called meat trust. Federal regulators broke them up, and then they created a policing agency called the Packers and Stockyards Administration to make sure that they didn't abuse what market power they had. And then critically, the federal government blocked mergers. It said, you can't just go out and buy your competitors and get a bigger and bigger and bigger footprint in the marketplace. We need to have a market structure that still allows capitalism to happen. And, and that was the, the rule book that America used from maybe 1921, 1933, all the way up until 1980. That was the playbook we used, and it worked great. There was tons of opportunity in rural America. Uh, to take one tiny example, the hog industry was robust and profitable. It had uh, open, transparent markets. It produced high-quality products. It worked great because they were blocking mergers 
they were policing companies, and they had broken up the monopolies. So simplicity should be the friend of the lawmaker. And that's why the incumbent monopoly powers and their lobbyists hate it. They want a 2000 page bill, not a 10 page bill, because a 10 page bill would be effective. You just described exactly what we have been going through in the legislative branch the last um, 12 to 18 months, you know, as we introduced the 5014 Senate Bill 949, you know, a year and a half ago, and it was simple. The the four packers had to obtain 50% of their product in the spot market. They had to come back to the spot market and compete for 50% of their acquirement. And then those um, purchases had to be harvested within 14 days so that we could keep our market current. And we had great momentum. And then weaker compromises started being flushed out in Washington, D.C. And it was like lawmakers started hitting that easy button and saying, oh, this looked easy. And those bills started getting longer and longer and longer. And now we've got a bill that's introduced that and that's the the Senate Ag Committee hearing that Senator Tester was referring to that you were watching was on Senate Bill 4030 earlier this week. And that bill is over 20 pages long. There's a consideration section in it at the end, which I kind of like to call the Packer protection section. If you read it, it's going to pretty well protect them. And like you have said, we can't really afford to compromise rural America any longer. I mean, these monopolies have all the market power and they're just they're just buying time the meat packers know exactly what they're doing they don't have any illusions about any of this stuff they know exactly what they're doing now the members of congress might actually not have a clue what's going on um but some of them do and i didn't mean to disparage lawmakers but it is a reality that these folks in congress are paying attention to all these different issues And so when the lobbyist from JBS and Tyson comes to them, what that lobbyist is doing is trying to present reality in a a very well-spoken, friendly manner. Hey, look, these unsophisticated Luddite folks at RCAF, they don't understand how the world works and they don't understand the insanely sophisticated job we're doing here at Tyson Foods. Oh my gosh, you don't even understand how smart we are and how complex everything is. We think that you need to add 30 more pages to the bill to accommodate the reality because, you know, if you don't, uh, golly, you know, the the whole system could collapse. (laughs) Just like it collapsed. I mean, what what worse could happen is, is my question. Here we are, we've got ranchers going out of business, feedlots disappearing, meat prices rising all the while these companies are booking record profits and and then they're like don't regulate this something bad might happen and yet these lawmakers like tester and grassley who were strong leaders with us on the stronger 5014 um legislation have have weakened and said yeah let's let's just compromise i don't know if it's to just get it swept to the side or what but yeah it's like putting a band-aid on an amputation at this point. I mean, we need, we need something strong. I covered a similar uh, episode back in 2010, as I said, okay, when the Obama administration tried to come in and reform the industry. 
And they tried to do it through executive power, uh, through the Packers and Stockyards administration with a rules change. Now, what you're trying to do, in my mind, is, is much more effective, pass laws in the Senate, pass legislative laws through Congress. That's, that's, that's the real way to do it. It's very hard, as I'm sure you are encountering. Members of Congress felt that they didn't have to pay a political price for going with the meat companies. In, in other words, the path of least resistance was just to do what the big monopolies wanted. Because the groups like RCAF and the groups like uh, RAFI USA, which represented um, poultry farmers, didn't have, you know, giant offices on K Street with a team of eight lobbyists who wear suits. And um, I'll never forget the time I was in the House of Representatives building, the Longworth building, I think it was, and the night before the ag committee hearing in the house, the night before in the ag committee hearing room, the meat industry lobbyists were throwing a big party with barbecue and alcohol and the, the staffers of the house and some house members were there in the very committee room uh, being wined and dined by the meat industry lobbyists, okay? We agree that the folks who, who lobby on behalf of the ranchers and the farmers and rural communities don't have that kind of money to throw around. Um, because there's more money to be made in, as a monopoly. So what these legislators saw was that it's much easier to go along with the monopolies. You're going to get money, you're going to get campaign donations, and who's going to shout at you on the other side? What's the organized force on the other side that's going to punish you? I bet a lot of lawmakers hear you, and what you say makes a lot of sense to them. Right. And they probably hear these stories from ranchers and rural Americans, and, and it probably makes sense. But at the end of the day, when they've got very well paid lobbyists for the monopolies and campaign donations from the monopolies on the one hand, it's easier to go along with the money powers. And so I, I don't know. This is such a difficult dynamic to confront. If these lawmakers feel like there's public pressure to tackle entrenched economic powers, you know, to really pick a fight, a 10-page bill picks a fight. A 200-page bill doesn't pick a fight. They're going to need to face political pressure to move. You know, so then that leads us into kind of stepping into a different branch of government. How important do you think reforms coming out of the, you know, out of litigation and using the judicial branch of government will be in this monopoly reform. Antitrust law is written in a way that empowers the private sector litigator. Antitrust law was written so that people in the market can bring civil lawsuits to address abuses. And in my mind, it's tragic that the center of gravity has moved to private sector litigation. And a lot of them have found a very ripe case in the sector of meat production because they see the abuses. And um, one of the most influential lawsuits was filed against the poultry companies it's called Maple Vale versus like Tyson Foods et al. It was filed in 2016. They have brought to light a lot of abuses they have revealed a lot of the anti-competitive behavior of the companies. And, and more importantly, I think it's very fair to say they've spurned the government to act. You know, 
uh, the Department of Justice, it is no coincidence that the Department of Justice under Donald Trump, by the way, filed uh, antitrust lawsuits against the poultry companies after the private sector litigation came along. Okay, they were driven by the private sector to do it. So the private sector can play a huge role and it is playing a huge role. And this isn't like some academic matter to sit around and think about. This is like business, right? And and the family business and making it ends meet, you know? So if, if private sector litigation is the vehicle that can get you where you need to be faster, I could see a lot of people taking it. I, I just think that from the point of view of American society, the, the problem needs to be tackled through Congress. Legislative branch is supposed to be the core of our governing institution. If we're still a democracy that responds to the desires of the people, but these big matters need to be decided in Congress. I don't think we're ever going to have a true solution to this problem until there's actual action in Congress. The cattle industry fascinates me in this way. The collusion among the beef packers when they buy cattle from feedlots is a conspiracy that has never been broken open. I kind of wrapped up the meat racket before I could really go spend a year and find all the buyers for Cargill and Tyson and interview them and get to know them. I interviewed one buyer. I've also met private sector litigators who've looked into that space. It's shocking to me that the U.S. Department of Justice is not in that space because there seems to me to be ample evidence across rural America from Texas to Nebraska that these companies aren't competing when it comes to making bids on fat cattle at the feedlot. It's remarkable to me that that node of the system hasn't gotten more scrutiny. If we do not achieve these market reforms, these you know kind of drastic market reforms, what is the future of rural America? What is the future of the beef and the cattle industry? I, I admire RCAF a great deal. Uh, the values are consistent. The actions are consistent. The message is consistent, but that's why I'm on this show is I don't understand why the federal government is not more on board with tackling this stuff. They sent people out to investigate this in, in 2010. And yet here, here you are having to try to bring this to the attention of the FTC and the DOJ again in 2022. It's dispiriting to me. What happens to rural America? What happens to the meat industry? I'm, one of the key points I want to make is whatever happens to rural America is happening to America. And we're discovering that more and more each day. If we don't reform the meat industry, uh, if, if, if we don't curb the power of the monopolies and we just let this keep going, I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen. They're going to suppress pay to anyone who raises meat. They're going to drive independent feedlots out of business more and more each year. They're going to control the feedlots through contract or outright ownership. They're going to reduce the American rancher to the position of being a, all but a paid employee of the company with almost no bargaining power whatsoever. They're going to reap more and more profits as they raise prices higher and higher on consumers. More and more wealth will be sucked out of rural America. Income will continue to be suppressed. These companies will never change voluntarily. These companies have doubled down on the, on the business model of suppressing pay to farmers and raising prices on consumers. It will continue. It will become exacerbated. If we don't reform these food system monopolistic markets, is there a food security concern that you see? There's a food 
security concern today? Just as a writer, you know, a journalist and a writer, uh, for better or for worse, we're kind of like a bystander. We we watch, we observe, we interview, we record. To witness a historic event like the COVID pandemic, that summer of 2020 was remarkable in the following sense. You, you know, there was a COVID outbreak at a, at a pork plant run by Smithfield in Virginia, and, and the employees were really sick. They shut down the plant because people were dying and people were not coming into work because they, you know, were getting exposed to a virus. And it knocked out 5% of the United States pork supply. One factory. Wow. That's amazing to me. We have allowed the industry to become so consolidated that when there's a problem at one plant, it quickly ripples out. Concentration is endlessly fascinating to me. When, when you look at Tyson Foods, it's a pretty small group of people at the end of the day who run that company in Springdale, Arkansas. And there's a small office where I've been that controls production on about 5,000 industrial chicken farms. So that's a group of like maybe 100 people max controlling 5,000 farms. That's a food security issue, in my opinion. And, and the fact that a very large uh, hatchery at Tyson Foods, if there's a problem at one hatchery, it emanates out to hundreds of farms. The COVID crisis revealed a lot. And one of the things it revealed is that these issues, these, these talking points, if you will, about resiliency and security through the opposite of concentration, security through distribution of power. Okay. Okay. There's this guy named Barry Lynn, L-Y-N-N. He writes a lot about monopoly power and consolidation. Brilliant, brilliant guy. Wrote a book called Cornered. And, and this guy, Barry Lynn, had been arguing for years that we needed to build more resiliency and security into our industrial systems. And he sounded a prophet of doom, you know, just this guy, oh, what are you worried about, man? What are you talking about? And then boom, COVID hits and it's our lived reality. So, it exposed the fact that a top-heavy, consolidated, concentrated system poses food security issues. We've seen a big round of it when uh, companies were trying to figure out how to operate in 2020. And when one plant shut down, it would cut out this huge portion of production. You know, yes, we do face a, a major food security issue by letting the, the industry get this consolidated. I've been just like sitting back listening. This has been awesome. Um, so what is next for you, Chris? Do you have any new projects about the meat industry or what are you up to right now? You know, after the meat racket, I wrote a book about Coke Industries out of Wichita, K-O-C-H, a book called Coke Land about corporate power. Then I wrote a book about the Federal Reserve, which is fascinating. It's this book called The Lords of Easy Money that just came out. And I wrote about how the Fed basically printed like 300 years worth of money in a few years over the last decade. And, and so I my job is to describe the powerful institutions that run our country. And so that's what I'm continuing to do. I'm on to my next book. I'm writing about another big corporation, probably working on my next book. And then I run a, uh, a nonprofit journalism program out of the University of Missouri Journalism School. And we're called the Watchdog Writers Group. And what we do is we give grants to authors to do books like the meat racket, if you will, or, you know, investigative deep books. And then we hire uh, graduate students at the Missouri J school to be reporters. And, and they work with that author or they go out and do investigations of their own. 
So running the Watchdog Writers Group has taken up a lot of my time along with working on the books. And there is just way too much to cover for an investigative business reporter today. So lots and lots of work to do. Please tell me that you are going to keep the meat industry and this issue in your radar and possibly have future work on it. And what I'm trying to do is actually try to hire in people or bring in people as a team to cover this in the, in the sense that it's so ironic when I finish a book and I'm done with it, that's when all these people out there start to mail me stuff. Right. And, and I'm like, well, where were you when I was doing the book? But what I want to do is kind of syndicate that out, if you will, or, or hire people or work with people that can continue to cover it to kind of expand the coverage. And, and there are a lot of good nonprofit newsrooms like investigate Midwest is one out of Illinois. And um, folks are definitely trying to, cover this more. So yeah, I have a feeling I'll be thinking about this and helping report on it for the rest of my life, probably. Well, we can't wait to read your future work and we wish you the best of luck in all those projects. So to wrap it up here, there's one question us beef loving ranchers always like to ask at the end of every episode. What is your favorite cut of beef and how do you like it prepared? Have you ever heard of Gates Barbecue in Kansas City? I have not. Okay, Gates is how I was raised on barbecue. And I don't know if this is like low rent or whatever, but they have a brisket sandwich um, that is like, it's just my favorite uh, beef menu item in the world. I know that there are wonderful steaks out there and all this stuff, but uh, honestly, like a brisket uh, sandwich from Gates with fries and their extra hot sauce, like that was my first barbecue I ever had. And my dad taught me that good barbecue needs to make the back of your neck sweat. And uh, so a lot of happy memories there. That's my favorite. Well, I don't know about you, but I will definitely be stopping there at Gates Barbecue next time I'm in Kansas City. What an incredible conversation. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us on the podcast and taking time out of your busy schedule to sit here and talk with us. I know we thoroughly enjoyed it. If you haven't had a chance to pick up your copy of The Meat Racket, we highly, highly encourage you to. It's available on Amazon or pretty much anywhere books are sold. It's very informative and like Chris told us, it's a warning sign of what is quickly approaching on the horizon for the U.S. cattle industry. The chicken and hog industries may already be vertically integrated, but let's take a stand for our cattle industry. Stay involved, engaged, and fight back. If you like the conversation we had today, make sure you like and subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating or review. We sure appreciate it. As always, to keep up with the conversations we're having, make sure to follow us at USA on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the USA Roundup. To learn more about USA, visit our website, www.r-calfusa.com. 